You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. Can I ask you a quick question? Ad hoc supervision and informal teaching. Our guest presenters are Dr. Helen Mulner and Dr. Penny Need. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome everyone. My name's Simon Morgan. I'm a GP here in Newcastle, uh, joining you tonight from a Wobbacal country. And before Penny and Helen start, I'd just like to very warmly welcome them tonight. So both GPs, both GPEX, the regional training organisation in South Australia, medical educators, and a great pleasure to have them on tonight. So Penny's a practice partner at the Pioneer Medical Centre in Tea Tree Gully and a senior medical educator at GPEX with an interest and passion for supervisor education. And the reason I've asked both Penny and Helen along is my experience working with them, and I know their quality and their passion. Penny's doing a master's in clinical education through Flinders, and she's a very committed educator who brings, I think, you know, lots of strengths to her supervision and education role. She's a basketball fan and was enjoying watching the Opals and the Olympics And Helen has worked in the same practice since 2010 when she started there as a registrar, which I think would suggest it's a very good practice. Simultaneously worked in medical education, including as a registrar herself, and now working as an educator. And similarly, a passion for training and upskilling supervisors, knowing that it's one thing to say, I want to do this, to be a a teacher, to be an educator, and to embark on that. But knowing that we do need to have a certain suite of skills and knowledge, and so that's what this is about tonight. It's a very great pleasure to have you both on tonight, and I'll hand it over to you to talk about ad hoc supervision and informal teaching. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Simon, and thanks for the very warm introduction and something we've got to live up to now, so we'll do our best. So we'll start with our learning objectives. We would aim to be thinking about some of the principles of teaching and learning and how they might apply in corridor or ad hoc teaching. We want to improve teaching by recognising some of those opportunities and we want to build some confidence and skills. I just thought I'd come back to the name corridor teaching. It's something that we've discussed a little bit. Penny, what are your thoughts on corridor teaching? Yeah, so we decided probably we shouldn't be doing a lot of this teaching in the actual corridor and there are different methods obviously for when your registrar calls for help and we're going to get into that a little bit later on as well. So is it in the room with the patient? Is it on the phone? How is it done? And less often in the corridor, sometimes in the tea room. Yeah. So we'll just move on now and Helen's going to take us through the learning cycle. So this is really just a reminder to think about the principles of learning and how learning leads to more learning. So if we think about any of our learning that we all undertake, it often begins with an idea that we need to learn something. So we formulate a learning objective, if we want to call it that. And then we decide how we're going to learn it. So that's where we plan our learning. That's where we say, right, I'm going to attend this webinar. I'm going to undertake this course. I need to upskill in this particular area. Then we actually do the learning. And we do the learning usually through some kind of experience. And then at the end of that, we evaluate, get some feedback, undertake some kind of assessment to see what it is that we have actually learned. Have we learned what we thought we were going to learn? Or have we now got some new learning objectives that are going to lead on to more learning? And with our registrars, whether they are new registrars entering our practice, whether they've been there for a long time, whether we ourselves as supervisors have been supervising for 10 years or forever, 
there will be that sense that there are always things that we can learn. And we all know that that's what we do in general practice. We've never come to the end of the road and have to stop learning. So we thought start by talking about some of our good learning experience. So when I was a registrar in Crystal Brook, which is a small country town about two hours north of Adelaide, I used to have a supervisor there. And every time I would go and ask him a question, he'd say, well, Penny, what do you think? And initially, I thought that was quite frustrating. But later on, I realised that I needed to come armed with some things to think and some thoughts for myself. And actually, I think it made my presentations of the patient case way better. And looking back, now that I know more about clinical reasoning, I think it was absolutely absolutely the best thing you could have done for me as a junior registrar there to get me to actually have to commit to things to put myself on the line which was you know uncomfortable at the time mm. but actually really helped my clinical reasoning process so yeah. I really like that yeah yeah and I think when we think about good learning experiences we need to kind of unpack what it is about the good learning that has made it good is it the teacher is it the method that they're using to teach us or is it the content that we're learning yeah, absolutely. And another good learning experience I always think of is it was a teacher that we had when we were doing molecular and cell biology at university. Mm-hmm. And she was just the most enthusiastic person. Like we were learning about the lack operon and anyone who's learned about that is pretty dull, right? But she could make that interesting just by her genuine enthusiasm. <laughs> and she's still memorable to this day that long after because she just had a love and a passion for what yeah. she was doing. And now, not surprising, perhaps, we're going to counteract some of our good learning experiences <laughs> with, with the, the not so good <laughs> or, well, let's Let's just say it as it is, the bad learning. And really to think about, again, what it is about that bad learning that was bad. So one of my examples in this space is when I was learning to drive, I had an older male driving instructor and I was learning to drive a manual and his hand would often wander from the gear stick towards my knee. It was really incredibly uncomfortable, highly inappropriate. Thankfully, I still managed to learn to drive and still are able to drive in a manual and I'm now teaching my daughter to drive in a manual. But it was a bad experience because it made me feel awkward and uncomfortable. And interesting, my bad learning experience is also <laughs> driving. And I still don't really like it very much. So maybe we need to do some teaching for some, <laughs> some driving instructors out there. The point of this exercise is just to get you to think, as Helen said, about what it was that made it bad. So just have a bit of a time to reflect on that in your head. And you might be thinking of some experiences now and just think about how you're going to try and avoid those sorts of situations within your teaching and learning environment within your practices. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really leads next on to thinking about our registrars as adult learners and we've touched on the learning cycle mm-hmm. and now we want to think about what it is that makes adults learn and stimulates a really good safe learning environment and one of the first things is that they're personally motivated. If we think about our registrars they're in a GP training program they want to learn to be a GP They need to learn to be autonomous, to be self-directed learners, so that when they're finished in the training program, they've got the skills to keep learning and to keep being challenged and to keep that little list of things that they can go home and learn once they've got their fellowship. And if you think specifically about ad hoc teaching, there's nothing more personally motivating than having a patient in front of you with a problem that you need to try and solve. Yeah. That is incredibly motivating. And it is also incredibly relevant. When they've got that patient sitting in front of them, they have to have an answer. They need a solution right here and right now. So they are motivated. The problem is relevant and they're going to learn something from that situation. 
we're having a bit of trouble teaching people about uh, travel health at the moment because um, the relevance isn't quite there. Yeah, but we always say you retain something so much better when you've actually seen it in clinical practice. And it is, it's just that relevance and that need to learn that on the job stuff. Yeah. yeah. I guess one of the other things with adult learners is thinking about pitching that learning at the appropriate level. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about GP registrars, they're only registrars for a fairly short space of time. And there's, there's not always seem to be a lot of difference between a registrar coming in at a GPT one level and a registrar who's just about to receive their fellowship but there still is a difference so we need to think how we can pitch that learning and that teaching opportunity at the right stage and the right place for that registrar yeah, absolutely I think is really important when we're talking about ad hoc teaching is the need for an adult learner to be respected mm -hmm. so especially with a registrar who is trying to prove their way in the general practice they're trying to show their patients that they're confident and competent and so the way you go about the teaching is really important to ensure that that registrar remains respected throughout that interaction we're going to come back to this right at the end as well yeah absolutely and I guess we've probably already covered this one there's active involvement of the registrar in that learning opportunity. When they're, they're calling to you, they need your the help. The patient is sitting there and they've got to figure out what to do with them. Adult learners also love some clear goals. This can be a bit hard in general practice <laughs> because obviously it's so broad, but when we talk about ad hoc teaching, the goals are pretty well set. You yeah. know, we want to get the information that we need to help our patient with the problem that we're presented with at this point in time. Yeah, and registrars as adult learners need some regular feedback. They need you to be touching base with them, even if they're a senior registrar, touching base to see how they're going, where they're at, where their gaps are, what the learning needs are for them at this particular point in time. And having that feedback and that assessment and that evaluation is a good experience for them as well as the opportunity for reflecting on that yeah absolutely and the time for reflection really fits in really well with that learning cycle you were talking about yeah. before so being able to bring it all back as well and often you may only have a small amount of time to do your ad hoc teaching but you can come back to it later on when you've got a formal teaching session hey remember when we saw you with mrs so-and-so how did you go with that what did you learn and just completing that cycle can be a really helpful thing to do so we're going to move on and i always this with all models are wrong but some models are helpful okay so taking that into consideration there'll always be obviously things that are wrong with all different models but just take bits from them that will help you with your learning and teaching so learning styles are really just recognizing that we learn in different ways I probably learn in a different way to Penny mm -hmm. and the registrars in our practice may well learn in a different way as well mm -hmm. as a supervisor teaching a registrar whether it's ad hoc teaching or formal teaching if I'm teaching them in a way that they don't really appreciate and that's not their best for their learning there might be a mismatch and that could be problematic so it's worth particularly at the start of a rotation when a registrar first joins your practice just to have a discussion with them and see if they're familiar with learning styles you can look them up online and we're just going to take you through a couple just to get you thinking about it if you haven't come across it before. So the first one is the Honey and Mumford model. People may have heard these terms bantered around. They were two psychologists and educational sort of researchers in the mid-1980s and they had uh, four different types of learners. Activists learn by doing. They're practical, hands-on people. They need to get in there, learn through trial and error. Reflectors really like to observe and think about it. They don't always say a lot. So that might be the quiet person who you're not quite sure if they're actually on the same page as you. The theorists really want to unpack what is going on. They get all, collect all the information, all the data, 
think about it and they need to be convinced that something is the right path to be taking before they give it a go. And the pragmatists are perhaps a little bit like the activists. They're ready to give it a go. They're practical, they're purposeful. They don't necessarily stop and think about it an awful lot. This is just one model and it's one that perhaps can be helpful. People are not necessarily one style of learner or another. They may fall into a couple of different fields. Absolutely. And this is a preference often. So often, obviously, in general practice, you need to sometimes be a doer and yeah. you need to sometimes sit back and think. And most people yeah. can do all, but it's just it's a, it's a preference of a style. And it's good to know what your registrar's style is more like. So I'm, I'm a bit of an activist, so I like to do. And... Um, I don't talk in final copy. I'm thinking as I'm talking. And so, and I kind of like, if I'm talking to someone and I'm trying doing that, but they're a real reflector, they don't talk until what that comes out of their mouth is that's the end word, <laughs> right? And so if I've got a small learning group, for example, or a registrar, it's good for me to know that so that I can tone myself down a bit and put the filter back on. <laughs> Another model, just to briefly yeah. mention is the VAK model, the visual auditory kinesthetic. And I quite like this one because I'm a fairly visual person and reasonably simple. I'm the doctor who sits there and tries to draw really terrible diagrams of body parts and explain it to patients. Unfortunately, I'm not gifted in artistic <laughs> skills. So there are many patients, I think, who can't quite get what I'm talking about. But that's my approach. And I have to pick up on the cues of the patient. And in the same way, I need to pick up on cues of registrars and think, actually, that approach isn't working with them. I need to speak more and draw less. So we're not necessarily saying that one style of teacher or one style of learner is necessarily right or wrong, other than the fact that we'd like the learners to become more self-directed. But certainly there are teachers who perhaps need to learn some more skills of being facilitators and delegators and less of those skills of being the authoritarian expert. Yeah, absolutely. So that leads us on to a very simple but somewhat complex question. So what is teaching and how would you define it? There are multiple definitions. Thinking about teaching as a planned learning activity and the learning about a change in behaviour that has been brought about by the teaching. Yeah, so ultimately you'll know that your teaching has been successful if you see a change in behaviour of your yeah. registrar the next time they're encountered with a similar problem. Yeah, and I think that's really where we get to with opportunistic teaching, that if we make the most of these little tiny nuggets of time throughout the day, that the registrar won't necessarily come back to you with the same question mm -hmm. if you've been able to teach them something and they've learnt something from that encounter which we'll come on to a bit later. Absolutely, absolutely. So what sort of teaching do you do within your supervisory and registrar relationship? Informal case reviews, and that would be the number one, <laughs> I think, that uh, most supervisors and most registrars yeah. will report on as ways that teaching occurs in their practice. Yeah, absolutely, number one. Yeah. So after your informal ones, you've got your structured formal case review. So actually doing a formal random case analysis with your registrar, sitting down, and we couldn't recommend this highly enough. So sitting down with your registrar and saying, show me patient three on Tuesday, and then doing a formal random case analysis of that. And it gives you opportunity to see the notes and to have a really good understanding of how your registrar is going. Yeah. This is something that not a lot of supervisors will use, but when they are used, they can be really valuable. Mm -hmm. Audits of registrar case notes, audits of registrar results, mm -hmm. the results that they've got coming in their inbox, 
gives you an awfully great insight into what it is they're thinking. Are they ordering every test under the sun because they've got no idea? Or are they really targeting those tests to what's going on? Yeah. And one of our supervisors online has said that they do review case notes and provide feedback and finds it very time consuming. And certainly we're going to talk a little bit about time, (laughs) probably, I think a bit later on as well. And referral letters, I find, can be really helpful to audit as well. I think most people are familiar with topic tutorials. You know, registrars will often say things like, I actually have no idea how to start a patient on an antihypertensive. Can you give me some tips on that? And you have a sit down tutorial session on that. Not an uncommon way to be teaching. But if you're struggling, GPSA have some fantastic resources online. So they've got a lot of all these topics, these beautiful two pages, even have some clinical reasoning questions on the back. Excellent for if you're struggling for some topic tutorial content to help guide you. And we can't recommend highly enough direct observation and video observation. Both you watching your registrar and your registrar watching you consult is highly valuable. Obviously, practical procedures is something that we're all familiar with. Some of you do this more often than others, but registrars really like to get their hands in and give things a go. And then the last one's online learning. And so sometimes, you know, if you're struggling for stuff to go across, getting online together with your registrar, you can sort of role model how you would learn or how you would look stuff up or the resources that you use or even do a DermNet quiz together or those sorts of things as a teaching and learning opportunity. It's also a great chance as a GP and as a supervisor to go, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind upskilling in that. Let's do that online module together. So now we're going to get to what we're here to talk about. So we're going to talk about opportunistic teaching. I'd like to get your idea on what percentage of consults do you think a GPT-1 registrar asks their supervisor for help in? And we're talking about a registrar who's three months in. So they've been in the practice for a few months. Yeah. How often are they coming and asking for help? Yeah. So most of you have gone with 12%, which is very much in line with the data from this trial that was done. Again, it's got uh, Simon Morgan's name in the authors and Susan Ward was the main author. And it was about responding to registrars in consultation calls for assistance. And it was related to recent data. And the recent data showed that term one registrars asked their supervisor for help in about 11% of consultations. That's quite interesting, isn't it? So you're going to get called for help quite often with a GPT one registrar. So whilst we talk about opportunistic teaching or corridor teaching, it is not unexpected teaching. Absolutely. Which makes a difference in how we manage it, which we will come to shortly. So our registrar is coming into our practice, but they're a bit more senior. Mm -hmm. So we want to know, in what percentage of consults do you think a GPT-4 registrar asks their supervisor for help? So most of you went with 3.4%. And I was surprised by this as well, because it was actually 1.2% in this study that they did, which was less than I would have thought for a GPT-4, but maybe ours just asked four questions. (laughs) But it really drops off reasonably significantly, doesn't it, as they progress through their training. And that's exactly what you would want and what you would expect. So what you tend to find is that the registrars in GPT-1 will tend to obviously call their supervisor for help probably is the first thing they will do. And as they get to GPT-4, they're going to look at other sources of help. So they might be looking up the resources that they now know everything about and they know exactly where to find everything online when they need it during a consult they might be more confident to do that during a consult so they're going to be coming to you for help a bit less so this is important to 
consider when you're trying to set up how you want to do your teaching of your registrars within your practice. So the next thing is, well, what are the things they're going to call you for help for? So that study that we showed said the most common things, and this is probably not a surprise to any of you, are dermatology and musculoskeletal. Mm -hmm. But how do the registrars know when to call for help? Well, luckily, someone has helped us out with this as well. So again, it's available on the GPSA website and it's the registrar call for help list. It's a really helpful tool that you can chat through with your registrar when they start out in your practice about the things that they should call you for help for. I find this is very empowering for registrars to be given a list and saying, look, please call me for these things. I expect you to call me when you have a neonatal patient. Yes. I expect you to call me when you have an acute abdomen. Mm -hmm. It gives them that confidence to know that you're expecting that call and that they don't have to fumble their way through it by themselves on their own. Yeah, absolutely. And another really helpful bit in this document is at the front, it makes you actually really assess, are you genuinely approachable? Are you? And how readily accessible are you? Yeah. And have you done an assessment of how likely you think your registrar is to call for help when they need you? Are there any cultural barriers? Are there any psychological barriers for them calling you for help? And are you present? So how do you like your registrar to call you for help? And clearly there's a mixture of responses. Many are using the landline phone, quite a number using the knock on the door, but it's also perfectly reasonable and given your particular clinic and the setup and your location that they might use an internal messaging system or your mobile phone. So there's no right or wrong. So there's no right or wrong but your registrar needs to know and they need to have explicit instructions on how to contact you and how you prefer to be contacted. If there's somebody else supervising the registrar, then they need to tell the registrar how they like to be contacted as well. You could see from our supervisors online, there's such a mix. Mm. So how's a registrar to know if they're not told? So I think one of the biggest questions that supervisors come to us with when we run new supervisor workshops here at GPEX is that they know there are some big barriers to managing corridor teaching or the ad hoc teaching with their registrars. What do you think some of those barriers are? If they can see I'm busy or behind, yeah, that makes you less approachable, doesn't it? Like registrars pick up on that too. Timing and confidentiality. I'm really glad you brought up the confidentiality issue because I think that's a big one as well. So we're going to talk about some strategies before we move on to our model for opportunistic teaching. So strategies. So Helen, you have registrars in your practice. How do you set it up so that you can overcome some of these time barriers? Yeah, so generally for our registrars, we have a primary supervisor and the primary supervisor may not be there full time. I don't think any of our doctors in our clinic are there 10 sessions a week. And so generally when the supervisor is there, then they will be that go-to person for that corridor teaching. (laughs) The times they're not there, the registrar has a designated corridor person And that person has nominated themselves. They know that they're the teaching person for that Wednesday morning clinic. And the registrar knows how to contact that person and which room they're in. We tend to move rooms a lot. So the registrar needs to have a cheat sheet that has Wednesday morning, I contact Dr. Helen and she's in room six. And Wednesday afternoon, 
Malcolm's not there, so I contact somebody else. That's how it works in our practice. Mm. And Penny, yours is a bit different. Ours is a bit different. So we have two registrars that have just gone across the GPT-2 now. So we had two starting GPT-1. And we quickly recognised that having a single go-to supervisor was going to make that supervisor too busy to be able to do effective consulting, especially in the early days. So remembering the stats of 11% of consults was for three months in. Now, three months, you've already done your steep learning curve, I think, in general practice. So even more so, you need to be prepared for that registrar to be calling you for up to one in two consults or in the first few days maybe every single one you might want to do that so if you don't change your diary you're going to get into trouble so you need to put some catch-ups in your diary and as Helen says you front load it so you know that you're going to need more catch-ups and more time when they're starting Mm -hmm. out and it's early and you'll be able to back that off later on but your supervisor that's responsible for the registrar during that time especially for a GPT-1 needs to have that time put aside to be able to do that else it's just stressful for everyone. Registrars also need to know if there are doctors in the clinic who don't want to be contacted. (laughs) Yes. And they also need to know how to contact other doctors if you're not available. If you're busy, if you're with a distressed patient, (laughs) if you're in the middle of a procedure, you might not be available for that registrar. So then they might do the wander up and down the corridor looking Mm. for an open door. Is there an alternative as a backup? Being a solo practitioner, there's unfortunately not a lot of sessions as backup. But where you can, just allowing yourself to have that extra bit of time will take the pressure off both yourself and off the registrar as well. Some of the other barriers people came up with there is registrar's too shy, doesn't want to show Mm. their lack of knowledge in front of the patient. One of the best things you can do here is role model. Mm. So sometimes pick up the phone and ask your registrar for advice about somebody you're seeing. If your registrar has just come off of six months in orthopedics training, call them when you have something that's relevant to ask them about. And just role model that you too ask for help. And I think that can be a really powerful way to overcome some of that shyness potentially. And then not wanting to look silly or making sure they know everything. Again, I think this can come down to the conversations you have when your registrar starts in your practice and setting that culture of learning within the practice and being really supportive to that as well, I think can be really helpful. So now we're going to talk a little bit about a particular model. Again, this is but one model. And it's really thinking about those opportunistic teaching times that you have with a registrar so that you're not just providing that answer to get them moving and you both be able to get on with your consults, but to think about how you can make it a valuable teaching opportunity. Now, this particular model is the five micro skills method. Some people know it as the one minute preceptor model. And it's really thinking about how can I get a commitment from the registrar first, as Penny said, ask, don't tell probe for some supporting evidence, reinforce things that they've done well, think about anything that they might have missed, and then think about a general principle that you might be able to teach them. It's thinking about how we can progress that registrar through a potentially simple problem or a slightly more complex problem. And we know that you guys probably all love role plays, so we thought we might give you some demos. Yeah, let's role play. Okay. Okay. So I am going to be the registrar okay calling, calling you for help Helen. all right okay you ready yep. all right. hi helen how are you going yeah good what's uh, up penny good i just wondered a quick question i've got a 32 year old lady here and she has size g breasts that are giving her a lot of neck and back pain right. um, she's looked into it she's done a fair bit of research and she really wants to have a breast reduction i'm just after who you'd refer to for that breast reduction right so what do you think is going on here penny i think she has really large breasts and needs a reduction 
Okay. And what makes you think this, Penny? She told me. I don't think uh, this model's going to work. Okay. Okay. So it didn't work for that situation. Yep. Okay. Right. And so obviously a little bit tongue in cheek, but just yep. models are <laughs> tools for you to use when they're helpful and when they're meaningful. This is not a rule book. We okay. do not expect you to do this every single time your registrar asks for help. That would not work. Let's try another one. Penny, could I please have your help? I'm in the treatment room. I've just given a flu shot to a, a 60-something-year-old lady and she's kind of struggling to breathe and mm. she sort of looks a bit blue and I'd really just like you to come and see her, please. Mm. What do you think is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not breathing and mm. I need some help. I'm worried about, I don't know, anaphylaxis or something. Ooh, could you could yeah. you please come down? What evidence is there that she may have anaphylaxis? Yeah, Penny. Okay, it's not working yet. <laughs> All right, but in an emergency... This is not going to help. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so no, no one minute precept in emergency. Run. Okay. Okay. So okay. let's Run think help. one yep. minute okay. with a real problem. And okay. this is going to be the bulk of those questions that registrars ask you on an ad hoc basis while mm -hmm. they're in the middle of seeing a patient mm -hmm. where you can actually make it into a valuable learning experience. Okay. We'll do it properly this time. We promise. Okay. Okay. Oh, hi, Helen. I just wanted to ask you a question about a patient. I've got a four-year-old little girl here, and she's coming with a, like a rash on her leg. Mm -hmm. It seems to just be in sort of one sort of area, a little bit like a cluster. Yep. And I'm not sure what it is, and I wondered if you could come in and have a look. Yeah, sure. Mm. So what do you think might be going on here, Penny? Well, that's a really good question. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure. I've never seen a rash like this before. Initially, I was thinking, oh, young girl, lots of spots. You know, could it be chicken pox? But I don't really think it looks like chicken pox and right. doesn't sort of started centrally and gone peripherally. And also, I don't actually think they're vesicles. I can't see any fluid in the lesions. Uh -huh. Some of them look a bit irritated. And so then I was thinking, oh, is it warts? And I thought, well, it could possibly be warts. And then I was thinking, oh, hand, foot, mouth. But no, it's not on the hands or the feet or the mouth. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, I have heard of this thing called molluscum before, but I've never seen it before. So sure. I thought maybe that could be what's going on. But honestly, I'm not really sure. Okay. Mm. So it sounds like you've really thought about a number of possibilities. Mm. Mm. Have you thought about looking up any of those references, like those Dermet references that we talked about? Yeah. So initially I was thinking, oh, maybe school source. So I looked yeah. up school source, but it doesn't look like no. school source. There's no crusting and all that sort of stuff so I don't think it's that yeah. and then I was trying to sort of oh, look I don't really know yeah um, sure. Yeah. How about I come down and have a look? That would be great. And it's probably worth uh, scheduling for our teaching session on Friday to yeah. think about rashes in kids. Oh, that would be really good because oh, dermatology. It's, yeah, it's a struggle. Perfect. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. We know it was a little bit naff, but gives you a bit of an idea how you can make something into a bit more of a broad teaching opportunity. It also gives me a chance as a supervisor to gauge her clinical reasoning skills and see what things she's thinking about and also then to plan some learning down the track. So you've been able to, in that interaction, get a bit more information and potentially diagnose what you think is going on with this rash, but also diagnose your clinical reasoning yeah. of your registrar. Yeah. It's so easy to just go in there and say, that's the Luscombe, which is what it was, but so much more powerful to yeah. do it in that yeah. method. Yeah. Now, we do have another model that we're going to really yes. quickly read through. Really quickly read through. Now, very exciting. But this model has just been published this week in the latest version of the AJGP in an article by Simon Morgan. So those of you who are astute will notice that it is based on how you interpret an ECG with our PQRST. And it's a model that you can use for both ad hoc teaching, but also your case discussions. So you can use it for both. And the difference between this one and the one minute preceptor is that it explicitly 
accurately articulates that you've got to solve the patient's problem, whereas the other one doesn't necessarily do that. So P stands for the problem representation. You want your registrar to present this to you in a certain format. Mm-hmm. And ideally, it's sort of the patient demographics and risk factors first, then the temporal pattern of the illness, and then the clinical syndrome. That's ideal. Then you need to know exactly what is the registrar asking for. You may need to do a few more questions around this to find out exactly the question they're trying to ask. And it can fall under three categories. So they're asking for rescue. That was our patient. We can probably stop our PQRC there and just run into the room. They're asking for assistance. And sometimes they're just asking for reassurance. Is this the right management plan? And certainly as registrars for rescue training, more times than not that 1.4 times that they're calling, they've already got a reasonable plan and they just need to run it past you. So find out actually what they're asking. and then reasoning so now we can really assess our registrar's clinical reasoning how well do they reason and you may need to ask a few more questions around this but you can do that explicitly and then s is for solution so if we want to maximize the clinical care of this patient and we need to address any gaps in the learning of the registrar again you don't just have to give them the solution. You can ask before tell still. You can still use that method. And then the last one, the T, is what can be taught. So we're going to complete that learning cycle now. Um, so a really helpful little tool. Hot off the press, signed copies <laughs> of the foyer by Simon. So, yeah, very excited that there's a new model out there that we can use across the board and that explicitly addresses what the registrar is doing because the primary role of this ad hoc teaching is to deliver quality patient care. And so this model also does that as well. One thing I could recommend is printing off the five micro skills or the PQRST model, whichever one you prefer to use, and just putting it next to your computer or next to your phone where your registrar normally calls you for help. It's just a bit of a reminder. It doesn't take up much space. And it just means that when they call you for help next time, you might ask, not tell as a first step. And I think that's my biggest piece of advice. It's Mm. really easy, particularly when they come to you with a problem that you know the answer to or that you're already running late and you want to just get them moving to get back to your busy consulting session that you just want to tell them the answer. Pause, take a deep breath and ask them what they think is going on. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. The supervisor's desire often is to take more history and I really would encourage I think ask before tell is probably the primary thing, but it's one of the really important things is just to say, no, no, whoa, whoa. give me the case summary. Just wrap yeah, it up yeah. into two or three or five sentences. And that is the way to work with it. But also, as you said, to um, assess reasoning. How well is this registrar identifying the bits that make a difference? Absolutely. And the thing is to be able to give a good, concise case summary, mm. you need to be able to pick out the key features. You need to be able to choose the bits of the case that are the most important to tell your supervisor. And if you find your registrar telling you all this extraneous stuff when they're meant to be giving you a quick summary, there's a red flag there. And you need to train them. You need to train them early. As Penny said, when she was in one of her placements as a registrar, that she knew to expect that her her supervisor (laughs) would say to her, what do you think is going on? And I think if you can train your registrar to be thinking that, then they will present it succinctly. They will pick out those key features and they will then ask you the question that they want to ask you. Yeah, absolutely. And the better the registrar does their case presentation, the more autonomy and the more power they feel over that consult and the more likely it is that you're going to be playing a helpful role rather than a taking over role as well and having to ask all that history again. Just to get to the last little session that we want to touch on, it's really to think about the times that you physically go into the room with your registrar and your patient and what that three-way interaction might look like. 
it's going to look different in different contexts. Again, not necessarily that one way is right and another way is wrong. There are times, Penny, when the patient might actually be the outsider. Yeah, absolutely. So you come into the room as the supervisor and the registrar gives you this fantastic presentation and you go through your one-minute preceptor and you're chatting and chatting and the patient's sitting there going, what about me? Uh, So just recognising the patient. I tend to do that by coming in and saying, you know, hi, how are you going? And then turning to the registrar saying, okay, you know, so that I've acknowledged the patient and then I'm letting the registrar take the lead as much as possible. And I think also for registrars to be empowered to know that when they are calling you, they are calling a senior doctor for some for a second opinion or some more information. And so therefore the patient is a privy to that educational experience. Some patients are not going to like it as much as others, but many actually many patients actually quite like it. Yeah, and some registrars need to practice their script yeah. of how they're going to say to the patient, oh, I'm just going to call my supervisor for help. Yeah. I'm a doctor. I'm just in the GP training program or whatever it is, however yeah. they like to say it. Sometimes it's good even in part of your orientation to go through their script with them. Yeah. So what are you going to say to the patient when you call for help? So another possible scenario in this three-way interaction mm. is when the registrar really becomes the outsider. Mm-hmm. And the times that I've certainly seen this when I've come in as a medical educator doing an observation visit is often when the patient has been a patient of the practice forever and they've known the supervisor forever and they come in oh hello Mrs Brown how you doing and and how's your granddaughter and oh it's so lovely to see you oh and how are those legs and you actually forget that the registrar called you with a specific question and they were going to present this to you and have a little corridor teaching session. And sometimes the patient is the one that triggers that. So they're like, oh, thank goodness, you've come in. I'm going to tell you my whole story now. Yeah. So it's good to have some methods for sort of saying, oh, thanks for that. I'm just going to hear what Dr. So-and-so has done so far. So another possible scenario is when you come in as the supervisor <laughs> And you feel like you're the fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. The registrar kind of just carries on with the patient. And often this occurs because the registrar is really just needing that reassurance. They're needing you to kind of observe and to okay what they're doing. And you're almost feeling a bit superfluous. But often it's a great opportunity to then congratulate them and say, well, you've actually done a good job. You're all on track. I don't think I'm needed here. Yeah. Absolutely. We had a, a registrar training once who was really struggling and calling us supervisor for help all the time. Mm-hmm. And the solution that we came up with with the practice was to give the supervisor a bit of extra funding to have a bit of time at the end of the day to catch up with the registrar, yeah. which meant that the registrar could then formulate their own management plans, institute them, but they could still check in with the yeah. supervisor later on. So if you're coming across that in your training, that's a good solution. Yeah. It worked quite well. And then, of course, with this three-way scenario, mm-hmm. there might be times when it really is a genuine three-way interaction between the supervisor, the registrar and the patient. Again, none right or wrong, but just be mindful of this. And it comes back to one of those principles of adult learning that we learn best when we're well respected. We don't want registrars to be undermined and we don't want patients to feel like nobody knows what's going on. Thank you very much for what was a wonderful session. Thank you, Simon. Wish you well, everyone. Stay safe. Um, Stay well and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. 
GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program.